Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through your word. And Father, we pray now that as we come to consider this this passage in 1 Peter, uh, that you would speak to each one of us um, in our various situations uh, and that we would uh, respond properly uh, to all the different things that you have set before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time we studied 1 Peter together, which was a couple of weeks ago, we saw that it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Uh, We looked at the fact that Jesus suffered and that his suffering in obedience to the Father resulted in his vindication and glory and our salvation. He suffered for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And he has risen and ascended to God's right hand with all angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. And we saw that he is the example for us to follow. And we contrasted him with the wicked angels who suffered for doing wrong. And we saw it is much better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Notice the pattern that Jesus set. Jesus suffered first and then entered into glory. Suffering first and then glory. And in our passage today, Peter holds that up as a pattern not just for Jesus, but for us in our lives. Suffering first and then glory. But the strange thing is this. Both suffering and glory ultimately come from God's grace. We also noticed last week that suffering for doing good ought to, at one level at least, be surprising. Why would someone want to persecute you for doing something good? But we know that actually it's not, is it? And Peter tells us not to be surprised. So, in verses 12 of 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. The word painful there um, is actually the word fiery. It's a fiery trial, which reminds us of what Peter says right back in chapter 1, verse 7, when he talked about how our tested faith is of, of greater worth than gold, though it is refined by fire. And so the trials that Peter is talking about here are trials that test our faith, and the goal of which is to show it as genuine, and to get rid of the dross, the impurities in it. That's something that happens under God's sovereign hand for our good. So Peter says, don't be surprised by it. Don't be shocked. Don't don't think it's bizarre. As Christ suffered for you, you will suffer for him. And you'll be partners with him in his suffering. And if you're partners with him in the hard times, then you'll be partners with him in the good times as well, when Jesus returns. Verse 13. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If we participate with Christ in his sufferings, we will participate with him in his glory. Because that's the pattern. Suffering and glory. And so it's not a bad thing if you're hated and loathed for belonging to Jesus. If you're willing to suffer with him, it shows that you belong to him. And the Holy Spirit is upon you as as he was upon him. And the Holy Spirit is also the spirit of glory in his presence in our lives now is a guarantee that we will participate in the glory that is to come. 
And so Peter says in verse 14, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You're suffering for Christ. It's a good thing in the end. It's part of the pattern. Suffering followed by glory. However, not all suffering is followed by glory. Not, not all suffering brings blessing. Now, Peter reminds us in verse 15, he says, If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of other kind of criminal or even as a meddler, a busybody. Right? There's, there's nothing noble about that kind of suffering. You suffer because you deserve it. There's no glory in that. However, verse 16, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. There's nothing shameful about people calling you names. Christian could have been a swear word for people at that time. Christian. Nothing shameful about it. Nothing shameful about suffering for the name of Christ or being ostracized by Christ. It's not shameful if people reject you or don't want to speak to you or insult you for following Jesus. Nothing shameful about being persecuted for Christ. If you suffer for Christ, you are not a fool. You're not an embarrassment. You're a hero. Not for yourself, but for the glory of God. For your willingness to suffer rejection and insult without taking vengeance brings glory to the God whom you love and serve. That points to your confidence in Him to do what is right, to avenge and vindicate you in the end. And He'll surely do it. But sometimes it's hard to keep that perspective. Sometimes we're tempted to think that you know, we're just the victims and the ones who are pressing us are the ones better off. And we can be tempted to think life's better on the other side, grass is greener. And so Peter in the next two verses deals with that. Now he starts off by acknowledging that it's tough being a Christian. And he tells us why. In verse 17 he says, For the time for judgment, uh, it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. Now the word translated family of God there is actually house of God. And the house of God, we know, is in the Old Testament, is the temple, wasn't it? In 1 Peter, we are the temple. In 1 Peter 2 verse 5, we saw that, that we are being built into a spiritual house. God's house is not the church building. God's house is his people. We are the place where God dwells by his spirit. We, are, we offer up spiritual sacrifices to him, the things that we do and the words we say in the day-to-day lives that give him glory. And Peter says the time for judgment is to come from the house of God. God is in his temple beginning the process of judgment. And the first to be affected are his people. See, friends, suffering for Christ is not necessarily a random thing. It's a good thing. It's an honor. It's noble. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's also sometimes part of God's discipline in our lives. God disciplines us in many ways. It's maybe one of them, but it can be one. God disciplines his own people like a father disciplines his children, puts us through various trials to mold us, change us. He does it in love. It's not in wrath, because that's all spent for us on the cross. 
He doesn't do it in, in, in his anger against our sin. Yet he does bring this judgment on us, not to condemn us, because we'll see in the very next section that we are saved, but for our own good, to make us more like Christ. And what we suffer is not wasted, never wasted. It's part of the fiery trial, which is part of God's refining process. For we are his temple, we are his house. He will purify us and make us holy, fit for the glory to come. Judgment, Peter says, begins with the house of God. So, being a Christian is tough, isn't it? Because contrary to what some people suggest, God's main goal for us is not to make everything nice the way we want it to be. His aim is not that we should be prosperous and successful in every conceivable way in this life. His goal for us is that we should be holy. And he uses all kinds of things, good and bad, to refine us in that direction. And sometimes it's tough. As I said just now, sometimes we can look at our non-Christian friends and say, ah, wouldn't it be so much easier to be in their shoes? I remember one occasion when I was an intern in a hospital in Adelaide and uh, the hours were really long and the job was really busy and I was really tired and I just kept keep on going and going and going and going and going. And we were looking at the patients lying down in their beds and doing nothing and <laughs> feeling a bit envious. You know? And just for a moment, I wished I was one of them. And then I stepped myself out of it. I said, come on, Andrew, that was stupid. Now, these people are sick and dying, and you're the fit and healthy doctor, and you're... It's stupid to be envious of them, isn't it? Your tiredness is nothing compared with their illnesses. Get on with your work and stop thinking silly ways. And Peter tells us the same thing. Do you think being a Christian is tough? Then being a non-Christian is even tougher. Second half of verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Be sure we face judgment in a sense, and sure the road to salvation, the path to glory is a hard one to follow, but we follow it as people who have been forgiven. People who are being made holy. Uh, we face the, the, the measured punishment of a loving father who, who, who wants to discipline us and mold us as his precious children to, to, to be holy in the, the way he wants us to be. But for those who disobey the gospel, they face judgment in, in an altogether different way. They face the eternal wrath of God against those who have revolted against him. They face the justice of God who is incensed at his rebellious enemies. The judgment they would face is, is nothing compared with ours. No, our judgment that we face is nothing compared with that. It's, when we suffer, we mustn't compare ourselves with others and think they're better off. When we're a persecutor, we mustn't compare ourselves with our persecutors and think we'd rather be in their shoes. Silly, isn't it? are not in a better position than we are. It's stupid to be envious of those who persecute us. And what we're facing is, is nothing compared to what they've got coming. And so if ever tempted to look longingly at the other side, then you know, snap out of it. Trust God to look after you.
Remember the pattern. Suffering and then glory. Keep on doing what you're meant to do. Because verse 19, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Do good, be willing to suffer now and wait for the glory to come. Now this pattern of doing good in spite of suffering uh, is to be seen in the church. And it's to be seen in the lives of those both who lead the church and those who are being led. And Peter goes on to address both of them. He starts with the church leaders in chapter 5 verse 1 and he says this, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Right? Peter reminds them he's one of them. He's a fellow elder. Uh, he's someone who has witnessed Christ's suffering. He's looking forward to the glory that is to come. And here's his charge to them. And it's a charge that applies to all those who are leaders in God's church, whether you're you know, official full-time pastors or cell group leaders or youth leaders or whatever other leaders you are. And here's what he says to the elders of God's people. He says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Remember Jesus after his resurrection? He, he appeared to Peter and he says, Peter, feed my sheep. Now Peter is giving the same message to the elders of the church. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Notice they're God's flock, not yours. The flock of God, they're God's people, not your people. And he says, watch over them. Lead them, feed them, nurture them, guide them, love them, protect them. Shepherd God's flock. And there are three things that Peter wants them to remember as they do. Three attitudes that that God wants to, to see in his shepherds, his pastors. Are they to do it? The second half of verse 2. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Friends, don't be a leader under compulsion, will you? No, don't, don't see it as an obligation, you know. Oh, I'd rather be a film star, but I guess I'd better do ministry instead, you know. Okay? Well, I... I don't want to lead a soul group, but I feel the pressure from Andrew every time he looks at me. Yeah? I really don't have anything to do with a youth group, because I hate youth, but there's no one else to do it, so I guess I must. Yeah? Right, if that's the case, don't do it. Right? Until God changes your attitude. Uh, God doesn't want shepherds who aren't willing. Uh, if God has given you the gifts to serve his people, he wants you to be willing to use them to serve his people. And if you're not going to do it eagerly from a willing heart, then, then don't do it yet. Shepherding God's flock is a great privilege, not a chore. If you're going to do it, do it not because you must, because you're willing as God wants you to be. You've got to be willing to do the work and face whatever hardships that are result. You need to be motivated, compelled, not compelled, motivated on the inside not from someone on the outside. But being motivated is not enough. You need to have the right motivation. And so at the end of verse 2, uh, Peter says, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not greedy for money, but eager. Now, at one level you could think there's no way pastors or Bible study leaders or whatever can be greedy for money. right? Because if you want to make big bucks, it's, that's, that's not the place to do it. The corporate world's where you go. 
you know, pastors don't get paid much for their duties and soul group leaders get paid even less. In fact, they don't get paid anything at all, do they? On the other hand, there are religious leaders, especially in America. Sorry, any Americans here. Um, but they who make an awful amount of money from, from this kind of thing, don't they? You know, send in X number of dollars and I'll pray for you and you'll be healed. Or more money you give to me, the more God will bless you and you're going to get more and more and more and call 1-300-300-300 and send me your money and uh, I will then misuse it and live a lavish lifestyle. Yeah. It's so phony, isn't it? Pardon the pun. <laughs> but, but the thing is that people fall for it. And religion is used as a money spinner. Peter warns the elders, don't be greedy for money. God's flock is there for you to feed, not to fleece. You're there to give, not to grab. Be eager to serve, not greedy for cash. But it's not just the American televangelists who are greedy for money. There are problems here in Malaysia too. See, elders of the church have positions of responsibility. And whenever responsibility is given, it can be misused. My friends, let me warn you with sadness that there are pastors in this country who steal church funds. They are not true shepherds of God's people. They are false shepherds. They are like the shepherds of Israel, which we, which we read about in our Old Testament reading. Shepherds that God was going to bring his judgment upon. Shepherds who fail to feed the flock and prey on them instead. People who masquerade as shepherds but are really there to steal and some of them lead churches. Now, I'd never heard about this kind of fraud until I came back here a few years ago and never imagined that shepherds of God's people would be doing such things, but when it happens, some of you have heard about them. And it's so important, isn't it, that we get the right kind of people to lead us. We must never be hasty with the laying on of hands. First and foremost, we need godly people. People who love Jesus, who love his people, who are keen to serve and not false shepherds who are greedy for cash. Peter says, shepherd God's flock willingly because you are eager to serve, because you want to see God glorified, because you want to see his gospel go out, because you want to see his people grow and become more like Jesus. That's why you should do it. The third aspect he mentions is the attitude of the shepherds. At the end of verse 3 he says, Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Like shepherds, the leaders, and pastors, not meant to lord it over those in their care. That ministry is not meant to be a power trip. Not meant to be dictators who force other people to do our will. Not meant to act like, like masters or big shots. and You know, persuade people to do God's will. And do it by being a godly example. So, elders among us, Shepherd God's flock willingly. Not for money, not for power. You know the pattern. Suffering followed by glory. Don't be motivated by the rewards of this life. Wait for the glory to come. Be willing to suffer now as you seek to serve. For like your Lord, you're to follow that pattern of suffering followed by glory. And verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, that's our Lord Jesus himself, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. That's your reward. 
It's his coming that we're longing for. It's his appearing that will change everything. He will take us from being the suffering church to the triumphant church. But for now, we are meant to suffer. Suffering followed by glory. That pattern that the elders are meant to be in the first line of um, is meant to be seen in the whole church as well. We don't seek for power and glory now. We wait for it in the time to come. And so Peter moves on to firstly address the young men or the new people, uh, the people the elders are trying to lead. And he says in verse 5, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are elder. Literally, the elders. We are to submit to the loving, non-coercive, non-greedy leadership of the shepherds that God has given us. And whether we are leaders or the ones being led, what we're meant to be is humble as we relate to each other. Now the way we express that humility is different. Where the leader leads humbly and the ones being led submit humbly. But the attitude's the same, it's humility. The second half of verse 5. All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Friends, that's an important lesson for us in church, isn't it? Whoever we are, we are not meant to be arrogant. Because if we try and, you know, action, action, you know, in God's church, right, we will end up on the wrong side of God himself. Right? There's no room for pride or self-glory in the church of the living God. We, we are all here by grace. None of us deserves to be here. We're here because God is kind to us in Jesus. And we receive God's salvation. How do we do that? By humbling ourselves. By admitting that we were wrong to disobey God, that we deserve his judgment. We can only beg for his mercy. And we were saved and we humbled ourselves. So we admitted there was nothing that we could do to save ourselves apart, of, apart from relying completely on Jesus. That's how we became Christians. That's how we stay Christian. We're continuing to trust, we're continuing to rely humbly on the grace of God in Christ Jesus. If we embrace pride and arrogance, we're no longer maintaining that attitude of humility to God. And if we try to make his church the arena of our own glorification, then we're kind of like setting ourselves up in competition with him. And let me tell you, the one person you don't want to be in competition with is God. The problem is, we're often so proud, aren't we? Even when we try not to be. If pride is not just us acting arrogantly in front of each other, it's forgetting who we are before God. It's forgetting how small, how helpless we are. And thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to. It's forgetting that we're saved by grace, that everything we have is by grace, that whatever it is, it's because God's been merciful to us. So what's the solution to that? Well, in God's grace, the suffering we go through is part of the answer. Look at verse 6. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Humble. The word translated humble yourselves is actually in the passive. Right? Peter actually writes, Be humbled, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Allow yourself to be humbled. See, let the suffering that you're going through change you and humble you. Let it purify your attitude to transform the way you think so that dross of pride is removed from your life. Accept suffering as part of God's refining work in your life. Because even in the midst of persecution, he hasn't lost control. Humility is a good outcome of suffering. 
because it leads to glory, suffering and glory through humility. Being humbled now, being refined now, being disciplined now, being changed now, that's for our ultimate benefit. And so Peter says, be humbled under God's mighty hand, verse 6, that he may lift you up in due time. Let God humble you. So eventually, he will exalt you. We're not meant to lift ourselves up. We're not meant to try and make ourselves great, to seek our own greatness and glory. We submit to his discipline, allow him to humble us, and eventually, God will lift us up. How do we do that? How do we allow ourselves to be humbled through the sufferings and persecutions we face? Well, verse 7 tells us the answer. It's cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, our translation has got this as a separate sentence from the last one. It's like two different things. It actually, it's actually one sentence. All right? And verse 7 is explaining verse 6. How do we allow ourselves to be humbled by, when, when facing suffering under God's hand? Well, by casting our anxieties on him. Be humbled by casting your anxieties on God because he cares for you. See, friends, when we go through suffering and persecution, we, we can act in two ways. We can shut God out, or we can call out to him for help. And Peter says, look, God cares for you. He loves you. He listens to you. Cast your cares on him. When my daughter went for, was in surgery recently, uh, it was take, took a lot longer than expected. Uh, it was supposed to be about one hour, it took about four and a half. And I was really worried about what was going on. You know, what, what could be wrong? And that made me cry out to God in prayer. To realize that you can't do anything, and it's all in God's hands. That that's that's a helpful thing to realize, isn't it? And of course, everything's in God's hands all the time. It just so easily we forget that until we get to the point when we feel hopeless and then we know it is. And that's just a little example. Little examples. Lots of things that are much, much tougher than that. But sometimes we need to face tough times so that we can really learn to cast our cares on God. Really learn to rely on Him. To really learn to humble ourselves and say, look, we can't do this. Help. We need to face the darkness before we can learn to trust Him in the darkness. So sometimes under God's loving and mighty hand, we face suffering and persecution so that we can learn to cast our cares on him, to cry out to him in desperate prayer, and knowing that we, we speak to the God who loves us and cares for us. And when we place ourselves in that posture before God, we realize our own inadequacy, our own weakness, we appreciate more intensely our own helplessness and bankruptcy. We become more conscious of the need that we have for his sovereign grace, that favor that he gives that we can't possibly deserve and uh, we can't demand from him, we can't twist his hand to give it to us. And we're humbled. Remember what Peter says? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Be humble, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may exalt you in due time by casting your cares on him. For he cares for you. And he really does care for us. He only places us in these situations to grow us and refine us, to, to make us what he wants us to be, to be ready to be with him in glory. We suffer now, glory then. Accept suffering as training. 
from the gracious hand of God. However, suffering and persecution do not always lead to refinement and glory. Suffering can also lead to danger and destruction. For some people respond to suffering by shutting God out instead of crying out to him. And some people who fall away from professing the faith when suffering comes, and, and then the pattern is broken, and the suffering is, is tragically rendered useless. All they went through was wasted. And Peter warns us, don't let that happen to you. And friends, we who belong to Jesus must take that warning seriously. Because warnings like these is part of what God uses to keep us in the faith. Peter says in verse 8, be self-controlled and alert. Let us be, be sober-minded, level-headed, be, be awake, be watchful. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I thought you might like that bit. See, if you're a shepherd, or a sheep for that matter, right, and you hear a lion's roar, what you don't do is go to sleep. You've got to stay awake. Because you know there's a lion around. And he's a terrible enemy. Well, friends, let me warn you. We have an enemy. He's the devil. And he's like a roaring lion prowling around. And he's hungry and he wants to eat someone. He wants someone to fall prey to him. He's looking to take advantage of persecution and suffering to, to turn people away from God. To drag people from the gospel. And so Peter says in verse 9, Resist him. Resist him. Stand against him. Oppose him. Don't let him get the better of you. Don't believe his lies. God does care for you. Don't let him beguile you into, give up, into giving up. Resist him. And how do you do that? By standing firm in the faith. How do you resist the devil? By trusting Jesus even when times are hard. You resist the devil by believing the gospel even when persecuted and tried. You resist the devil by doggedly maintaining that God is good, even when everything around you seems bad. Resist the devil. Stand firm in the faith. Be willing to suffer now in light of the glory to come. And one thing that I can encourage you as you do is the fact you're not doing it alone. End of verse 8. Or end of verse 9, rather. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. See, brothers and sisters, whenever we face persecution and suffering for following Jesus, we're not alone. We have other people in our community who face the same kinds of things and we can support each other if we talk to each other and, 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 and encourage each other. But whatever we face, let me tell you, that's pretty low-level opposition compared to what some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing around the world today. Researchers tell us that in our day, 165,000 Christians lose their lives for Christ each year. 165,000 a year. That's an average of more than 18 an hour globally. Now, friend, that's persecution, isn't it? An average of 18 of our brothers and sisters resist the devil and are faithful unto death every hour of every day. That's 18 who have died for Christ. Well, actually, that's uh, 
27 who have died for Christ since 10.30 this morning. We started our service. Now if these people can do that, and surely we can put up with the more petty things that people throw at us, can't they? Don't give up. Resist the devil who tells you to do so. Stand firm in the gospel. And if you do that, that suffering glory pattern will be the mark of your life. Suffer for a time now and then enter glory forever. That was God's plan for Jesus and that's God's gracious plan for us. His goodness that we can't earn. And so Peter says in verse 10, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Your brothers and sisters, in the end, God will put everything right. That's a promise. He will restore us. He will make us whole. He will bring us to glory. He did it for Jesus, and he'll do it for us. And in the meantime, he will strengthen us to endure. To make us strong and brave to face the foe. To keep us steadfast and firm in the gospel in spite of opposition. We'll suffer now in his strength and be with him in glory. And friends, that's the message that Peter wants us to remember. That's what he leaves us with. That's the main point of what he writes to us. It sets before us the pattern. The suffering and the glory. And all that being by God's grace. And so he says in verse 12 that this is what the letter was written for. He says, I've been written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this, what he just said in verse 10, is the true grace of God. God's true kindness, his goodness to us, that we don't deserve, is expressed in the glory to come. We look forward to it eagerly. And it's also expressed in the midst of the sufferings that we face now. Because his kindness oversees it all. To refine us, and give us the strength to endure. And so to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the pattern that you have set before us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that as he calls us to follow him, he doesn't call us to do something that he hasn't done, but that he has gone before. And he has suffered for us and entered into your glory. Father, we pray that we be people who are willing uh, to suffer for him, to be willing to to suffer for doing good. Uh, We pray that... uh, um, Different ones of us here would be going through different things, uh, some relatively petty, uh, some quite severe, in fact. Um, but Lord, we, we pray that for each of us, we would be fixing our eyes on Jesus who has gone before. That each of us, we would be looking forward to the glory that is to come. And that for each of us, that we would be um, strong and steadfast, uh, to face the foe. Keep us, protect us, we pray, because we know that we do have an enemy, the devil, who roars like a lion and 
trials and wants us to fall away. Protect us, we pray. Uh, You are our shepherd. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you would strengthen us to be firm and strong uh, and not to not not to, uh, and not fall away, but that suffering we go through uh, would result in us being humbled, it would result in us relying on you and trusting you more and more, uh, it would result in us um, keeping on crying back to you, uh, knowing our own bankruptcy and our our own um, helplessness, uh, and so being humbled under your mighty hand and waiting for the time when you will indeed lift us up. Help us as a church to be willing to face suffering and persecution for the sake of Christ. Help us to be people who are willing to, uh, to do good um, in spite of, of, uh, of, of whatever the dangers uh, and whatever, the, and whatever the, um, the, the results. Help us, Father, uh, to keep our eyes firmly uh, on the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.